Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode in which I'll be chatting to Craig Tevendale, Head of our International Arbitration Practice in London and Head of Energy for the UK at Herbert Smith Freehills, and Chris Parker, a Dispute Resolution Partner and International Arbitration Specialist at the firm. I am Charlie Morgan, a Senior Dispute Resolution and International Arbitration Lawyer, also based in London. Today, we're going to be talking about contractual risk allocation with host states in the energy sector, and in particular, in the oil and gas sector, given the low oil price environment within which we're currently operating. These are challenging times, no doubt, and they're also times of dramatic change. And um, we'll talk a bit more about that and the impacts of contractual relationships with host states in that environment. But you can also hear more on it in our Catalyst, Future of Work and Future Cities campaigns that you can find on our website. In the current low oil price environment, oil and gas companies and governments alike are suffering financially. It's still a little bit too early to know what the latest slump in oil prices will mean for governments in high oil producing jurisdictions. But what we can be sure about is that those grappling with reduced receipts from oil and gas exports will struggle all the more to grapple with the consequences of COVID-19 because loosening the purse strings to ease fiscal policy will be all the more difficult. And so in that context, today we're going to talk a little bit about how state entities or national oil companies might be looking to generate a bit more value from the commodities that they have within their territory and how the fall in oil prices and the consequential adverse financial effects can drive some governments to look closely at the contractual arrangements that are in place and potentially some of the fiscal terms that surround those. Um, So, Craig, if I can come to you first and ask you to talk a little bit about some of the contractual arrangements between host states and investors, whether that be IOCs and and their partners, and in particular the, the types of provisions that you're seeing at the moment coming under some scrutiny and potentially leading to friction and even full-blown disputes. Thanks, Charlie. And let's focus on uh, the most common type of uh, agreement that we encounter in the upstream, which is, of course, the production sharing agreement or production sharing contract and the nomenclature changes in some jurisdictions. Indeed, it's a technical services contract or something else which avoids the concept of production sharing. But the fundamental principles uh, are the same, which are that the state uh, allocates uh, the original uh, production to the contractor to recoup its costs of exploring, developing and producing under the contract and that there will then typically be a division, uh, an allocation between the host state and the uh, IOCs. And in the current low oil price environment, uh, there will be particular attention given to the specific uh, terms, uh, amongst them the mechanism for cost recovery and the split of profit oil. Um, And in particular, we have seen that there will be a focus by host states on the costs incurred in uh, exploring, uh, developing and ultimately producing. Uh, And there will be uh, a particular uh, focus in in terms of uh, challenging whether or not some of those costs uh, should indeed be uh, recovered. So that would be a divergence of views between the host state or national 
or company and the contractor parties as to whether a cost was legitimately incurred and properly should be recovered in priority to any distribution to the state. Is that right? Typically, uh, many um, PSAs uh, will uh, provide limited basis by which the costs incurred in exploring, developing and producing uh, might not be cost recoverable. Uh, and this will depend upon the generation of the production sharing agreement and also the jurisdiction. But it would be typical, for example, for the right to disallow costs to only arise if there has been a material or willful breach of contract or gross negligence or willful misconduct or some variation uh, on those concepts, on those uh, very high bars to disallowing cost recovery. Otherwise, uh, most PSAs will uh, entitle uh, those, uh, those exploring uh, to recover their costs even if, for example, um, it has not been done uh, well, even if uh, there have been cost overruns or problems with schedule, uh, which might even uh, reach the extent of negligence commonly interpreted. What we are seeing at the moment uh, are more of these disputes arising, the greater exercise of audit rights by states, uh, a greater tendency to challenge historical cost and to trim the uh, cost recoverable proportion. And of course, that then follows on um, such that uh, as amongst the joint venture itself, um, those um, which have incurred these upfront costs in the first place, there may then be disputes, there may then be challenges against the operator as to whether what was done was done in the most efficient way and often the fact that the host state is challenging the right to recover flags up that there is a dispute or a challenge uh, on the way at the joint venture level too. So um, Chris, if I can come to you then on any other areas that you're seeing causing disputes or disagreements between parties at the moment in the, in the current climate. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, yes, I will pick up on a few um, additional themes. Um, first of all, I'll just pick up on stabilisation clauses um, because they are uh, an important part of the contractors' um, armoury under many PSEs or equivalent agreements with states. And what essentially they are are contractual protections against subsequent changes in the legal or fiscal regime of the host state. And they can take various different forms, but probably the most common is uh, an economic equilibrium. Uh, stabilization clause, which is effectively an agreement to adjust the economic terms of the PSC to match um, subsequent changes in the legal or fiscal regime. And that generally, there'll be triggering events for a stabilization clause like this, and they will generally include a change in law or a change in the way a law is applied or a change in tax. And these clauses can be, um, as Craig alluded to earlier, uh, an important protection for investors. They um, will give, at the very least, a negotiating tool with the state if, for example, the fiscal regime has changed, which we all know can have very significant financial implications, to say that, effectively, there's a contractual promise here that you would either indemnify us or adjust the commercial regime if there was a change in tax along these lines. So a powerful potential protection. They do tend to raise various legal questions including particularly as to the scope of the clause, what was it intended to cover, 
was it intentionally triggered by a change of the sort under discussion and also as to their enforceability whether that's under local law where there can be more challenges if the PSC is governed by the law of the host state then sometimes there may be more difficulties when it comes to a state at least in enforcing these clauses with the state arguing well it cannot be as a matter of law of my country that a clause will operate to fetter my discretion although there will always be arguments around that um, but also often PSCs can be governed also in part at least by international law principles and there is a well-developed body of international law examining the validity of stabilization clauses and when they will be upheld but there's certainly um, a very useful potential protection and certainly something we see discussed and have seen discussed recently in the context of this environment and the sort of regulatory and fiscal pressures from host states that Craig mentioned earlier. Thanks, Chris. Um, and, and we've mentioned um, the pressures that governments are coming under here financially. Is there anything on, on the flip side where counterparties to the states are suffering in these challenging times and, and how that impacts on their contractual arrangements with the state? Yeah, absolutely, Charlie. Uh, and certainly it's a tough time for um, everyone involved in the industry at the moment. Uh, there's two points um, building out of your question that I'd highlight. The first is um, a situation, especially when fields are in exploration or, or development stages, where contractors decide in this environment that the IOCs and their partners decide that they wish to um, minimise expenditure or at least defer certain expenditure, whereas the state's interest then may well be in well, get on and explore this field or get on and develop this field. So the state may well be sometimes rightly resistant to that sort of proposal and may, that may need to be agreed with them. It's changing expectations. So in that situation, it's very important that, that the investors think about what obligations they have, whether it's minimum work obligations under the PSC, whether it's obligations that have been generated by previously agreed development plans or work programs and budgets, make sure that they look at those and what they may be. And then as I say, there, there will be two a twin track discussion here with the state. One is in terms of what the legal position is, then secondly, in terms of managing the state's expectations, uh, because, of course, there are pressures on both sides there. The second point I'd make in response to that, Charlie, is simply just from a, a perspective of distress or insolvency on the part of, it, of the contractor entities. And many, obviously, in the vast majority of all PSE arrangements, the contractor entity will be made up of at least two oil companies and maybe more and there is a question as to what happens if one of them becomes insolvent and that will also be dealt with under the JOA under the joint venture agreement so that's an important to be aware of the situation there but under the PSE for example it is possible that there may be termination rights if one of the contractors goes insolvent or more likely there will be an obligation on the other contractors in the event of insolvency to pick up the obligations of the of the now insolvent party and particularly, I suppose, to be aware of a situation where it's the operator uh, who is in distress, because then the other parties will really consider how do they continue operations, and importantly, what rights does the state have if the operator goes insolvent? So definitely a point to watch there as well, Charlie. And what about production? So we've seen various efforts for um, state entities, whether it be OPEC or the, or the wider group, to limit production in order to try to bolster prices. Have you seen any disputes arising from that? Again, we're thinking about how host states are managing their budgets and managing their sovereign resources at a time of low oil prices. Uh, and in some cases, that 
may uh, militate in favour of keeping the assets in the ground until such time as the uh, profit stream or the, the revenue stream that uh, arises uh, from developing that asset uh, is increased. And of course, there is flexibility in some assets, there's less flexibility in others and commitments are made and uh, technical reasons mean that uh, it's not literally quite so simple as turning the taps on and off. But there is certainly some flexibility in most assets for, to some extent or other. And what we've seen uh, in recent times is some action by states um, either under existing rights under PSAs to control production uh, by one means or another, or alternatively to enact new laws or regulations to give rise to commitments uh, which they may have made multilaterally. And certainly issues that have arisen in terms of advising clients about how they, uh, their rights, more typically more broadly granted rights under PSAs to uh, extract and uh, produce freely uh, may be impacted by new domestic regulations which on the face of it may conflict with that or may uh, impede um, the ability uh, to produce uh, freely and uh, recover revenue. And the other area perhaps to have particularly in mind uh, here is, well, how does what's being uh, mandated or in some cases requested, um, how does that impact upon existing work programs and budgets and upon multi-year development plans? And will uh, any changes, uh, any requests that are being made be reflected such that the uh, investors, the, the IOCs are producing, um, may not be uh, caught out by agreeing to changes, albeit perhaps on a temporary basis, which might then uh, put them out of step with their obligations under other instruments, uh, plans uh, and uh, budgets. And Craig, that point on production can, of course, go the other way too, where sometimes the um, IOCs or the uh, the participants uh, will be have a commercial interest in reducing production temporarily, as you mentioned earlier. And of course, that can then lead to debates or discussions with the state, where the state uh, wants to maintain production at the levels perhaps featured in previously agreed development programs. So again, that's an important area to be aware of and consider if you are in that position to make sure you do consider the state's expectations and, of course, their legal rights too. And Craig, what can counterparties to a host state agreement or a PSA be looking out for in this context and be alert to when they're operating in this environment? So in terms of what to keep an eye on, in terms of the, the mitigants around this, it is, of course, imperative to be familiar with the cost uh, recovery uh, regime. It's imperative to ensure that uh, that uh, investors are operating on the right side of this but it's also especially important to make sure that everything is documented to the standard that's required and what we tend to see are that cost recovery exceptions are raised uh, often uh, in very broad categories and, and very uh, across many points of detail um, and often uh, it's a question of negotiation and compromise as to which are in or which are out um, and fundamentally uh, an inability to keep the detailed records which are required to uh, explain what happened and uh, why costs and schedule impacts were 
as they were, will often lead to negotiated compromises and horse trading uh, rather than the absolute recourse to uh, the strict legal position. Thanks very much, Craig, for that very helpful overview of uh, some of the tricky issues arising at the moment in relation to cost recovery. Could you maybe say a few words on the fiscal terms that accompany these agreements or, or are found within them and how those are giving rise to some friction at the moment? Of course, along with uh, entitlements to royalties and uh, sharing of profit oil, uh, host states will uh, derive uh, a considerable element of their revenue and expected return from uh, the fiscal terms upon which they have granted uh, re- granted um, the the assets. And whilst these will often be characterised or couched in terms of income tax, there might be other uh, regimes which are applicable as well. And what we are seeing at the moment is are two things really. First of all, a a keenness to revisit the existing terms and in some cases to introduce new regulations uh, or laws to make up um, through fiscal uh, instruments uh, what is being lost by the impact of the oil price. Uh, And the second means is a more energetic application of existing uh, levers here. Uh, is one of the key levers which are available to host states to increase revenue where budgets uh, are left with holes in them otherwise. Uh, and this is a real uh, area of focus just now. Thanks very much, Grayson. Chris, maybe I'll come back to you to wrap things up for us. And, and maybe I can ask you to uh, just draw out a couple of points in summary of what we've discussed and then your recommendations for what state counterparties should be doing at the moment in terms of getting their ducks in a row and and, uh, preparing for the challenging times ahead. Thanks, Charlie. So I suppose to round things up, what what we've tried to do today is give a flavour of how some situations where there is a disconnect in commercial interest between states and the participating oil companies can materialise in disputes. Of course, that won't always be the case. There will be plenty of projects where good dialogue and relationships means that the interests um, remain aligned, or at least where they are temporarily out of alignment. There is agreement as to the best way forward in the long-term benefit of, of all the stakeholders. And that ultimately is, of course, the aim in any of these situations. As Craig says, you don't want to get to enforcement. You, of course, don't even want to get to litigation or arbitration if you can avoid it. So in terms of takeaways, Dialogue and relationship with the state is, of course, always critical. But to have that effective dialogue and relationship, it's really important and really beneficial to be aware of the sort of potential flashpoints that that can be coming down the line um, of the sort we've talked about today, whether that is cost recovery, if you're at that, if you're at the production stage of the project, or whether it's in um, expectations for development, if you're at an earlier stage of a project. And then you can then consider the different documents, the different contractual rights um, as they are, and and horizon spots the issues you may face, hopefully allowing you to address some of those issues proactively with the state, or at least if and when they do arise, you are familiar with the contractual position and leaves you well placed to go and negotiate a a beneficial outcome. Great. Well, Craig, um, Chris, really good to speak to you both. Thanks very much for your time. As Craig mentioned, please do join us for the next episode, which will be when a contract doesn't cut it, reaching for the treaty. And we hope you'll join us again. Thank you very much.